0: Everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 168 and the first installment of All Things 16th Century Women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me. Over the next 2 months, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes and video lectures, which will be published on my YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tutors patron. Visit patreon.com Talking Tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of tutor themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly competitions. All patrons are eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 20th and the 21st of August, I'll be chatting to Adrian Dillard about Jane Seymour and Marjorie Horseman. Details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag I Love Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show is Kate McCaffrey. Kate is an historian and assistant curator at Anne Boleyn's childhood home of Hever Castle in Kent. She recently graduated from her master's degree in medieval and early modern studies from the University of Kent, where her thesis focused on the groundbreaking new evidence she uncovered in one of Anne Boleyn's printed books of hours held at Hever Castle. She has just co-curated the Becoming Anne Connections Culture Court exhibition running this year at Hever and co-authored the accompanying book entitled Becoming Anne alongside Dr. Owen Emerson. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
1: Welcome to all things 16th century women, Kate. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here.
0: Yes, it's so exciting. You're kicking off this special, special online festival of learning, and I'm just so excited to have you here. So how about we start with an introduction? Would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and
1: your background? Yes, absolutely. So um, my name is Kate McCaffrey, and I'm an I'm an historian and assistant curator at Hever Castle in Kent, uh, which is where I co-curated our current exhibition entitled "Becoming Anne: Connections, Culture, Court," and that's all about Anne Boleyn's younger life and her upbringing. And I work closely with Anne's private books of hours at Hever. That's where my research is kind of centred, uh, and my research with them so far has brought to light some groundbreaking new evidence about Anne's memory and her legacy and her personal and largely female networks, um, both during her lifetime and after her execution. Yes, it's so exciting. And if anyone
0: wants to listen, I have chatted to Kate about her (laughs) incredible research. So you can go and have a listen to that episode after this one. Don't go anywhere just yet. Um, So uh, we titled this talk Rival Queens, an Outdated Narrative. And I know both both you and I are quite passionate about this. So what do you think, Kate, are some of those outdated and problematic narratives and portrayals that circulate today about the Tudor queens?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you said, I'm absolutely passionate about this topic, as you are. You know, I've always been drawn in my studies to these kind of stories and tales of powerful historical women, and the 16th century is absolutely jam-packed full of them. And I think there are so many outdated and problematic narratives and portrayals that kind of circulate today about Tudor queens. I don't think these outdated interpretations are exclusive to Tudor queens either. I think they extend, you know, to women throughout history, whether they were royal or not. And they're all underpinned by a kind of systemic issue. I think, but we'll talk a bit later on about why the narratives exist, but one clear problematic narrative that I believe still exists today about Tudor queens um, is the tendency to degrade and discredit them um, based on their supposed or potential sexual promiscuity. So I think Anne Boleyn is a perfect example of this. You know, she was and still is sometimes referred to as things like the great whore or the concubine. And what's important to remember is that these were obviously real contemporary terms used to describe Anne um, by her enemies, by people like Eustace Chapuis, for example, who was the imperial ambassador in England at this time. You know, he frequently used terms such as whore, concubine, she-devil, to describe Anne. Um, And this was for the simple purpose of insulting her and attacking her reputation, Uh, in Chaprice's case for political allegiance reasons as much as anything, I think. And obviously I don't have an issue with people quoting contemporary sources such as these, but what I do have an issue with is um, sort of blindly believing them um, and taking them as as facts today, just in order to discredit historical women or Tudor queens like Anne. And I think it's a kind of easy default attack uh, to go to with women, um, this kind of attack on their moral reputation. I think it's incredibly outdated and reductive to remember women from history, you know, based solely or largely on their supposed sexual exploits. And I think one of the most common perceptions of Anne today is still that she was, you know, an adulteress or a seductress, a large reason. Behind that is obviously the trumped-up charges against her that brought about her downfall. Uh, But the vast majority of historians today, including you and I, I think, uh, would agree that Anne was not guilty of these charges brought against her. And yet this narrative of Anne as the, the great whore still persists in popular imagination. And this isn't to say, of course, that there are not amazing revisionist studies that exist today and that are coming out, you know, that challenge these traditional narratives, and they're so important, but the preconception still exists. And I see people dismissing Anne you know, as a whore or defining her solely as one of Henry's discarded wives or remembering her only as an incestuous, beheaded wife. Um, you know, I've seen it on social media. I see it in person. And I've heard these kinds of terms used to insult all sorts of historic women and other Tudor queens and defining them solely by their sexual reputation or their moral reputation or their connection to their husbands or to other men in their life. It's used to diminish their influence, I think, and to strip back their agency um, and harm their reputation. I think that's sort of scary enough that reputation can seem as important today for women as it did 500 years ago sometimes. And I tend to find that if traditional narratives aren't sexualizing or discrediting historical women, then they romanticise them instead. So we also have this flip side of Anne uh, where we get the narratives, which I think are largely rooted in Victorian historiography, where she's the sort of romanticised tragedy victim uh, you know the damsel in distress and again I think in its own way this is too reductive it also strips agency away You know, she wasn't just a victim. She wasn't just a scandalous wife. And I think what's important for our understanding today is to kind of strive for a bit of balance amongst these kind of extreme ends of the spectrum. Narratives that have been given to us, you know, trying to find a middle ground um, amongst that. And I think another outdated narrative narrative you come across a lot with regards to 16th century queens is comments on or analysis of their appearance and their marital status and not much else. And it's underpinned by a struggle we have with women throughout history, which is a lack of sources about their lives. That's the bottom line. And the sources that exist often you know, are about them in relation to their nearest male relative. But there are 16th century queens, um, for example, a couple off the top of my head, you know, Anne of Cleves, Claude of France, who've somewhat been dismissed in years gone by, I think, um, for their supposedly unattractive or plain physical appearance. And this has made Their lives and stories seem less appealing to tell. And I think absolutely that's changing now. And there are some incredible works out there and in the process at the moment. But it's a legacy of an outdated narrative that still persists, I think. You know, this idea that women's histories aren't as interesting if the protagonist wasn't a real beauty. And I guess finally, one one more that I would bring up is um, probably one of the most pervasive and outdated narratives that I see all the time. And I'm very keen to help overturn is this tendency to pit women against one another. You know, I've written a few articles on this myself recently, and it will be a theme of my work um, going forward. But we see this with Tudor queens, I think, specifically all the time. So we have, you know, Catherine of Aragon versus Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn versus Jane Seymour, Mary I versus Elizabeth I, Elizabeth I versus Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, so on and so forth. I think these queens obviously all had issues with one another. You know, their relationships were not without tension, but it doesn't mean that we cannot today appreciate, understand and admire all of these women as individuals without forcing them to compete against one another. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's a theme we're going to be exploring today.
0: There was so much that I loved about what you just said so much. I'm trying to remember now, what was I thinking as you were speaking? (laughs) So I was, I was also thinking that obviously Mary Boleyn has also suffered a lot from this exact same thing that you're talking about, this reputation that she somehow earned and I actually have no idea where it's even come from. It's definitely not rooted in contemporary evidence. Um, I was also thinking about Anne. It's interesting because we tend to read her story backwards like we do with all the tutors. Um, Obviously, you hear a lot of the time people saying, oh, but she was at a very promiscuous court, you know, so that's where she learned all these incredible, I do not know, secrets that, you know. You're right about the beauty as well. That was really interesting because I know myself when I post any portrait um, that isn't, incredibly attractive people just don't want to believe it they will fight you and they will say that cannot be Anne like Anne was beautiful like, you know and you just think goodness she was so much more than obviously just her look so it's so interesting isn't it
1: it's so interesting. And I think so much of it is because people like to kind of scandalize the stories or make them seem uh, more dramatized than they actually were. And I think a lot of that you know, comes from the kind of just popular imagination of women today. And we kind of project that on the past that they have to, have to look a certain way. You know, Contemporary standards of beauty were completely different 500 years ago to now. And the stories are just dramatic enough, I think, without this kind of need to over-sexualize them. And and just
0: going back to Chapuis and other contemporaries using those Mm -hmm. phrases, obviously, great horn and and concubine and whatnot, it is exactly as you say, we do need to find the middle ground, don't we? Because there's clearly an agenda at work here. And, you know, we need to be aware of that when we are quoting those sources. (laughs) So intriguing. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So why do you think... Let's get to the let's get to the nitty-gritty. Why do you yeah. think there's this tendency to pit one woman against the other, whether she be royal or non-royal?
1: Because we do see this a lot. Yeah, we do, we really do. And I think there's a sort of fairly obvious kind of extensive systemic issue that kind of underpins all of these outdated narratives, and that is quite simply, I think, just sexism. I think the 16th century you know, was a patriarchal society. Um, our sources from this time largely come from men and from male points of view. And this is something that preceded the 16th century and has continued down throughout the centuries and traditionally and generally speaking, obviously there are exceptions, but history has been written by men predominantly. I think even today, a lot of the famous historical works that you see cited were written by men and some of them are absolutely wonderful, but I think that somehow women's voices throughout this tend to get a little bit lost. And that's, it's so exciting for me today to see and be inspired by so many female scholars in this field at the moment. And obviously, it's important to note that the tendency to pit one woman against one another is one that has been and I'm sure will continue to be also perpetuated by women. It's not just men who perpetuate that. But I do believe it's rooted in this kind of patriarchal idea that in order to build up one woman, you have to knock another down. So obviously, there are so many modern day examples of this as well. An obvious one, I think, in the current British royal family is Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton, the Duchesses of Sussex and Cambridge respectively. Whatever your personal feelings um, about these two women's, women are, and I'm sure people have them, um, it's clear that I think the media and popular imagination do tend to pit them against one another. And I think there are other issues with this specific example uh, at play. You know, I think racism is also a factor as well as sexism. Um, but what struck me most, I think, was actually when Meghan was pregnant with Archie and the media headlines, you know, would call her greedy for attention if she was touching her bump Um, but then those same media outlets would call Kate a really caring mother for touching her bump and so you see these kind of really obvious discrepancies and I think it plays into the kind of current social idea of having to be on a team like to be team Kate or team Megan which could just as easily be applied to being team Catherine or team Anne from 500 years ago. And I think there's just still this kind of ingrained need in our society to praise one woman at the expense of another, which is something that desperately needs to change. Um, You know, we can get behind more than one one woman at a time. We can admire and appreciate women as individuals without this kind of need for competition.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I have to admit that I did have a team Berlin top,
1: but I don't wear it anymore, (laughs) Kate. (laughs) (laughs) No, <laughs> and it's really terrible now. Going. I don't know where my in top anymore. Um, <laughs> no. However,
0: I am team Berlin, but I'm also team everybody else. So that's well, fine. that's
1: the thing, isn't it? It's we can be teams, but let's not exclude other teams. <laughs> exactly.
0: No, I totally agree with you. And what always, I suppose, what I always find a little bit shocking, and this this could be because I have predominantly female followers on social media. Yeah. So I just want to say that first. However time that I've seen these sorts of comments they have come from women which I find yes, yes. really disturbing as you said of course this is rooted in patriarchy and whatnot but it seems that today my experience is I've found it is usually women that attack other yeah. women
1: yeah absolutely and I, and I've see I see that a lot as well I think it's it again seems to be something that's just kind of in our psyche as a society that we have to big someone up by bringing someone down and you know I also don't think it's exclusive to women. I think it happens to men as well, definitely, this kind of competitiveness and need to kind of uh, choose one over another. But yeah, it does seem to be perpetuated by women a lot on social media. I would say that I found that as well, and I, I think yeah, it's it's kind of a cliquiness that I think we need to sort out because it's not um it, it is outdated. I really do believe it's outdated. And I believe that we've expanded enough now um, in terms of our horizons and, and and our values now that we can we can be broad-minded and open-minded enough to to appreciate women as individuals and not have to have an element of competition brought in.
0: Definitely, and this. of belief you know that you can't admire both for example I'm just picking these two women as examples Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn is one that I'm sure you've seen I've seen it said so many times even directed at me because of course predominantly I work on Anne Boleyn so people kind of (laughs) assume oh you must not like Catherine but quite to the contrary I, I think Catherine's just amazing so what do you think about that whole thing where you can't like Anne and Catherine or you can't like Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots
1: I just think, yeah, I think it's it's a real assumption that people make because obviously I'm the same, obviously working largely on Anne Boleyn and working at Anne's childhood home. We have a lot of people who assume... Um, And I know Owen, obviously Dr. Owen Emerson, he's the same working at Hebrew too, that we are Berlin fans over anything else. And obviously we are Berlin fans. I adore Anne. But it doesn't mean I also think that Catherine of Aragon was like an incredible, intelligent, educated, strong, powerful woman. And I can still appreciate that. I can love Anne and her story and find her fascinating, but I can still find fascination in Catherine. You know, I think those two are a great example for centuries. I think they've been pitted against one another with historical narratives kind of delighting in their famed rivalry and their differences. You know, they were adversaries in love, And in power and in religion in their lifetime you know they shared a a husband but maybe very little else that's the kind of traditional history we've been told um you know it's painted Catherine as the kind of scorned Catholic wife and then Anne is this bewitching reformist seductress and I I don't think that's ever been a fair portrayal of either queen I think it's way too simplified and it only succeeds really by tapping into this kind of outdated social dynamic which is the praising one one woman uh, only to the detriment of the other and yeah this kind of confused rush to to feel like you have to only be for one woman and against the other it only increases the division between them and of course, these queens have many crucial differences. You know, we can't erase those. and We wouldn't want to. But we should also widen our perspectives to consider that they also shared a lot in common. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, sparked by something I came across in, in my research. But just, you know, on, on the offset, these women have, they shared humanist international educations. They shared intelligence and bookishness. Piety and religious engagement, even if they were at slightly different ends of the religious spectrum, these two women were both very pious. They were both at the whims of their very mercurial husband, and they both ultimately failed in their queenly duty, you know, to provide a male heir, but they had daughters whose legacies ironically outshone that of Henry's sole longed-for son so there are kind of synergies between these two queens that I think maybe haven't been considered because they've been lost in this rush to declare them only as rivals and it's something that I think we need to look at a bit more closely.
0: It does reduce them doesn't it to some sort of two-dimensional cutout and I think that possibly comes from the fact that because we've heard so much about them we read so much about them we watch them on television shows and movies they've almost transformed into characters rather than human beings but of course they're you know we're all complicated aren't we humans complex (laughs) layered and I just think yeah it just doesn't do them doesn't do them service does it when we reduce them to those labels and
1: we have to we have to look at all those different facets because like you said it's otherwise they're just two-dimensional
0: and you mentioned some things that you uncovered in your in your amazing research so tell us a little bit about um the insights you were able to to glean from from the work you did about their relationship their connection and i am still here talking about Catherine of Aragon and and Berlin
1: yes so during my work with um Anne's printed book of hours which we hold at Hever i discovered that anne was not the only Tudor queen to own a copy of this same printing, and actually Catherine, Anne's great rival, also owned a copy. Um, And the two of them may very well have actually read their books, their same books, together in a shared group of, of prayer. And this is absolutely a new kind of connection between these two women and is definite proof that they had more in common than we might have thought. And I think it's this kind of initial connection that sparked me to think a little bit more about what they may have shared. And it's a connection that comes at a very pivotal point in the English court. Um, It's between sort of 1527, 1528 when these books were produced and obviously that's when Anne's star is very much on the rise we think by this point uh, Henry's proposed and she's accepted and Catherine's star is you know subsequently on the wane so it's a huge kind of time of change in the structure of the Henrichian court and that's why it's an extra intriguing connection I think between these two women at this time but that their shared book it also reflects their famed differences There's levels of decoration across both copies which are revealingly different you know Anne's copy is illuminated to a significantly greater extent than to Catherine's Anne's book has these full-length gold borders adorning pages she has extra images and red and blue elliptical frames and corner decoration Catherine's copy does not have any of that extra decoration and of course that could simply representative of Anne's personal, you know, choices and and enjoyment in opulent objects, but also it could be an insight, I think, into something more suggestive, which is her personal ambition at the time. But either way, we have a kind of clear example, I think, of how we can appreciate the differences between these two queens, but also widen our understanding to see their similarities, because like their respective books, they were the same but different, so we have that kind of really nice example.
0: Yeah, really, I really, I like that you've brought up the piety because I always, this is something that always kind of mind boggles me that we we are very happy to accept the sincerity of Catherine of Aragon's piety, mm. you know. But when it comes to Anne, why is it that people feel that she simply adopted a posture of, you know, being a pious woman or a, a reformed posture in order to gain some political power? or Whereas with Catherine, we don't question it. We just believe that she was a pious woman. But with Anne, there seems to people Want to think that there was this ulterior motive rather than that she was a genuinely pious woman and genuinely interested in reform.
1: I think again, it comes back to the kind of traditional narrative of of Catherine as this as the Catholic wife, the good Catholic wife, and Anne as the kind of reformist harlot. I think a lot of it's probably rooted as well in kind of Catholic propaganda at the time. Those kind of ideas of of them as being so different, but yeah, I think that actually Anne was an incredibly pious woman you know we have a lot of evidence to suggest that she was piety doesn't mean you know engagement with the catholic faith necessarily although obviously these books of ours are catholic texts so we do see her still engaging with that kind of literature Um, but we have so many records of books that she owned that were you know heavily religious in nature um, particularly uh, later in the 1520s and into her her reign as queen we have books that show including um, the one that's prefaced with george boleyn's wonderful introduction and dedication to her by Jacques Lefevre de Tabb, but we have all sorts of um, evidence to show that she was really engaging with and importing, you know, religious books, um, particularly ones from France. We know that she read the Bible in French. She encouraged her women, um, her ladies, to also read the Bible in French. You know, they would have read together, read the Bible, read scriptures, and you know, she also seems to have conducted a very pious household probably having learnt from Catherine's example, you know, having been a member of Catherine's household and seen how um, her ladies were told to conduct themselves. Um, So I think actually Anne would have learnt a lot from Catherine um, and from Catherine's example, which again is something we don't often think of her doing. We see them as so separate, but they absolutely were both engaged, very actively engaged with religion and religious thought and religious literature, even if it was sort of maybe different ends of the spectrum.
0: Yes, and until her last days, wasn't she, when she had books coming in while she was imprisoned in the tower. So, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. I know that also, so going back to your, your research <laughs> again, uh, you talked quite a bit last time we chatted about this subject, about female networks, and I found this so fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. So that was another kind of key aspect of my research, I guess, was being able to kind of piece together the path that um, Anne's printed book of ours took in the years after her ownership, which we just didn't know about before. So I found um, four new inscriptions within the book, which really helped me to kind of see who the later owners were and string them together in this network that you mentioned. Um, And it became really clear that the book continued its 16th century life Um, after Anne, within the predominantly female hands of a provincial gentry family in Kent, um, situated around Hever, um, who protected the memory of Anne, of its original owner, by ensuring the survival of her signed inscription. And I think something we cannot forget with this is that it's that's a particularly brave act in the wake of Anne's dramatic downfall. We know that Henry pretty much attempted a sort of systematic erasure of of Anne from history um, as he quickly moved on to his uh, third wife, Jane. And so not much is known, I think, about Anne's immediate afterlife and her immediate memory and so this is a really nice example and it's a real story of female solidarity I think and community and bravery by the women who kept Anne's book safe and I think alongside that kind of community who who formed to protect Anne's legacy is um, a community that develops as a result of being inspired by Anne's note in the book. I think it's become a real encouraging safe space for rare female expression the presence of Anne's notes seems to have inspired these women who owned the book after her to also add their own notes and messages and kind of continue to personalise the book in this very intimate way. And I so, so I think now it's really become this kind of communal symbol for a gendered identity, really. And it's also significant that those who owned the book after Anne's downfall um, seem also to have been very much... You know law-abiding Kent families because we can see that um they've erased the feasts of St. Thomas Becket, for example, and the names of the popes, which became law in 1537. Um, but that in itself, I think, is a great subversive paradox because they're they're obeying the law and, and obeying the king, but they're also harbouring this kind of fugitive signature in the book. Um, and I think that makes it particularly special. And I also think we don't often appreciate Anne's female kind of friendships or her female network you know we don't necessarily look into them there's not a huge amount of information about them so this is a I think a really beautiful example of how a group of women who personally knew Anne you know treasured her memory despite her her big disgrace and her execution.
0: Yeah, it is beautiful. And when I read it, I was just, I was so happy because obviously, as you know, Kate, she was, you know, she was robbed of her sister in the last couple of years. She was robbed of her sister-in-law. So I, I just, I'm, I hope that she had, you know, good friends there to to help her through those that period. Because really, from the start of 1535, she was well aware that every single person was watching her she was already feeling quite um, stressed and under pressure. So that's a long time that she had to have without her, you know, some of her close female relatives. So I hope that those women were able to somehow give her some support during that period. So Kate, we've talked about the fact that these outdated narratives, they've been absorbed into our popular consciousness. So what do we do? How do we go
1: about changing it? I think, well, to be honest, I think we're absolutely in the process of changing, um, you know, some of these outdated views. And I think the main thing is to do what we're doing right now, which is to talk about them. Um, I think lots of people wouldn't necessarily even think about these problematic narratives or outdated views because it doesn't necessarily occur to you and that they even exist unless you're sort of sensitive to them or or looking for them. And so firstly, I think identifying that there are um, narratives that maybe need to be revised or changed. That's a great first step. And then eventually, it's about rewriting those old narratives. It's about replying, um, applying, sorry, the revisionist thought um, to these kind of traditional narratives and challenging what we know. And there are amazing revisionist works coming out all the time. A couple I know about that I can't yet say anything about and there are also fabulous ones like our friend, uh, wonderful friend and scholar Dr Estelle Parank's new book Blood, Fire and Gold which is about Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici who are seen as traditional rivals and she really explores that a bit more. And of course your own incredible book which is coming out uh, late this year which I um, had the privilege of reading it already so I can say that it is incredible and that it does literally challenge everything we know about The Last Year of Anne's life. And I think those kind of works are key. You know, we have to challenge what we've been told by histories written 30, 40, 50 plus years ago um, and not be afraid to rethink, you know, and to relook at sources and bring a new pair of eyes or a new perspective to them and to be aware that these kind of pervasive narratives are probably stamped across quite a lot of what has already been written. So we have to sort of try and strip that back a bit and undo some of that work in order to redo the histories with a more open, challenging, curious mind.
0: And it's not an easy process. I can say that from experience. It's quite a daunting process. It's a time-consuming process, and it does take a lot of energy. The other thing I found is sometimes it's challenging to, to question what somebody has been saying for a long time, especially when that somebody is someone like Professor Eric Ives, the late Professor Eric Ives. You think to yourself, well, you know, who am I to challenge what he said? But in fact, that's what each and every one of us has to do. And I spent, so, as you know, a, a long time just checking everything, double checking, triple checking things. Yes. And I was shocked. I was actually shocked at how many times... I came across stories that I thought I knew so well and they were, in fact, fiction or some just somebody's interpretation or they were from, you know, 100 years after Anne had died or something like that. So you're right. It is so important for us to, you know, set aside the imposter syndrome and just go in there yes. and and, you know, think about these things, talk about them we're allowed to have interpretations, aren't we?
1: We are, we are, and it's, you're so right. It's unreal how much is we sort of just take as fact without actually kind of checking. And when you do put in the work to kind of check even the most amazing, you know, biographies like Professor Eric Ives, there are always, always little bits that you think, actually, that's not quite correct. And maybe I can bring a new perspective to that. And yeah, your book is doing that tenfold. So it's very exciting. Well, thank you so much. And just keeping an open mind,
0: right? Like, it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to admit? oh I did get that wrong or you know there's been new research I need to rethink that it's it's not easy to to do that when you've had a certain story going around in your head for 20 years to then I was just chatting with um Owen, Dr. Owen Emerson and we're always talking about Anne's birth date which drives us both bonkers (laughs) and you know there's new information coming out that possibly it was a little bit later I'm willing to you know Except we were just having a laugh, thinking how hard it is to say, oh, okay, this is what I've had in my head for all this time, maybe isn't correct.
1: Exactly. It's like deep beliefs and maybe even things that we've written about or spoken about. And you have to always be open to the possibility that things might change because history is evolving in that way, which is so exciting. I think it's a really exciting time in this area and in this kind of era as well, because there is a lot right now that's being challenged and being revised so it's, um, it's always about just staying tuned to see what someone new is bringing, is bringing. <laughs>
0: exactly. No, I totally agree with you. So in terms of just writing about women in general, what do you think are some of, and you've already mentioned a couple, what do you think are some of the challenges associated with writing about women from the past?
1: Oh, I think there are many. <laughs> and I think this is probably played into some of the kind of traditional narratives that we have seen. I think, like I briefly mentioned, first and foremost is probably the huge lack of source material uh, that can be available to scholars to go about uh, writing about women. You know, like I said earlier, women were largely not seen um, as worthy of note necessarily um, apart from in relation to their nearest male kin you know whether that was related to their father or their husband or their sons that's generally how we see women kind of referred to or recorded Um, they weren't often recorded as individuals and I think a lack of educational opportunity also contributes hugely to our lack of source material about women in comparison to men we have less female writing still available to us today and what we do have tends to be from obviously women of the kind of aristocracy or royalty as opposed to women of lower social classes whose voices are even harder to I think track down but I think we also have to be aware when writing about women from the past that we don't force modern morals onto history you know I've obviously spoken quite a lot about how it is important to use our modern awareness of issues um, and how this has affected the history of writing uh, in the past. But equally, we can't start claiming, for example, which I do see sometimes that, you know, Anne Boleyn was the first feminist. You know, these are kinds of terms that just did not exist 500 years ago. And we can't force that onto the past. We can't avoid the outdated narratives by going to the other extreme. So again, it's it's about trying to find that kind of balance, I think, which can be really hard, because we obviously all bring our own experiences and views and values to what we write. As much as we try, I think it's impossible to be completely impartial. And it's a very nuanced topic. Um, You know, we have to be aware that we have to revise these outdated narratives with our modern perspectives, but without projecting or forcing them onto the past. You know, I think that's a good place to start, but it is a challenge, definitely.
0: I try hard to to look for if I'm thinking about a person, you know, to to find the contemporary evidences in what did other people around them think about them at that time or say about them, rather than me just diagnosing people with you know things. <laughs> Henry is a good example, isn't he? It's so yes. tempting, and I know I've I've said it myself before and thought it myself. It's so tempting to diagnose him with a personality disorder. You know, Mm -hmm. to me, it's clear that if he was here, that's probably what he would be diagnosed with. But does that help us understand him if we put those modern labels on him? I'm not sure. So it's I think it's better to look, for example, you know, there's some great quotes of of Eustace Chapuis describing Henry that are just perfect. And (laughs) I think that's more useful, isn't it? Rather than me saying, oh, I think he may have had this or that, you know, Chapuis saying that he thinks Henry, you know, only thought about Henry is much more powerful.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Chaprice had a way with words, didn't he? His uh, Some of his quotes are amazing, but it's, oh, yes. it's exactly that. I think it's, you know, still listening to the contemporary voices and contemporary sources, but just challenging what we think we know about them, you know, using um, the kind of wider minds we have today. but But we can't just project that Back onto the past—it's it's a really tricky balance. What a
0: fun and exciting um, career path yeah. we've chosen, Kate.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so
0: um, you've got so much going on. Tell us a little bit about where you know listeners can go to to find out about your
1: work. Oh, I've got there's a lot in the works at the moment, actually, which is really exciting. You can follow me on my Twitter page, probably where um, I'm most active, which is Kate. Katie McCaffrey, and also my recent Instagram page, which Owen actually forced me to set up about a month ago, uh, which is Kate McCaffrey Historian. And I also have a website, KateMcCaffrey.wordpress.com, but that is something that I need to update more often, I'll be honest. And you can also keep tabs on Hever Castle socials, um, you know, the events and books and things that we have coming up over the next couple of years at Hever, particularly next year, which is something that we're working on at the moment, exhibition wise, which is very relevant to the things we've talked about today. Um, And there's a book that we are currently writing which will be going alongside that and i'm writing that with owen and also with our head curator alison palmer this time which is very exciting um so yeah so there's lots of things in the works personally as well as um to do with HEVA. so definitely keep tabs on my socials and Heva's socials and um come and see our exhibition as well if you are interested and if you are um local yeah lots of exciting things that's
0: so fantastic i'm so excited and you know kate i will be there i'll be staying at HEVA yes. castle two nights at the end of september i'm just going to yes. be you're just going to see me bouncing around honestly
1: we are ready to roll the red carpet out because I can't believe I've not met you in person yet so I'll be know. so exciting to I know to I can't you.
0: wait so there is a lot to look forward to and I know I've had some hints about some good things next yes. year so I may need to <laughs> make another return trip Kate thank you so much as always it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and thank you so much for taking part in all things 16th century women
1: thank you so much it's a wonderful event
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail, and on Instagram as the Most Happy Seventy-Eight. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.